This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author and activist Cory Doctorow explains why information doesn't want to be free. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot brings us breaking news on a new deal between Amazon and Hachette. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. We have a new number two on the hardcover fiction list. Uh, it's The Burning Room by Michael Connolly. We gave it a starred mm. review. Um, and we said that an autopsy opens uh, his superb 19th Harry Bosch mystery after 2012's The Black Box. Uh, and in this case, it's the, the death of a mariachi musician who was transformed into a symbol for urban violence uh, when he was was wounded as a random victim of a drive-by shooting. So uh, this is, wow. uh, he's become quite the, the polarizing figure uh, and then he dies and uh, his death prompts a re-examination of the earlier case. And uh, we say that Connolly serves his readers well with his encyclopedic knowledge and gifts as a storyteller and uh, takes them from all the way through Los Angeles from the wealthy enclaves of Mulholland Drive to the barrios of East L.A. So oh. that's a quite an exciting novel there. Yeah, and sounds good. At number two uh, on our hardcover fiction list. And then it's all books that we've talked about before. Mm. Uh, we'll have to skip all the way down to number 18, uh, which is a Star Wars tie-in novel, Tarkin, by mm. James Lucino. I think it's really interesting to see these tie-ins it, you know, really hit the bestseller charts um, nobody tends to think of them as super duper big titles, but they are. Yeah. Um, and often I see, uh, especially a lot of very respected science fiction authors who maybe hit the mid-list and can't quite get out of it. They go over to tie-ins and suddenly they're mega bestsellers. So, no kidding. Uh, yeah, you, you really, wow. I mean, I think people disparage tie-in books, but um, you get some real talent writing them and obviously people love them right yeah and uh, i wonder if that one also might have gotten a boost from the recent announcement of the title of the next star wars movie everybody's talking about that over in my little science fiction corner of right. the world down at number 19 is Let Me Be Frank With You by Richard Ford. Uh, this is another Frank Bascombe mm -hmm. series of novellas. And uh, this collection is set in New Jersey in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, the weeks leading up to Christmas of 2012. And uh, our review says that despite Frank's dyspeptic outlook, his cranky comments, Ford packs in a surprising amount of affirmation and redemption. And readers who met Frank in Ford's earlier novels... Uh, which are books like The Sports Writer, Independence Day, The Lay of the Land, mm -hmm. uh, will quickly reconnect with his indelible personality. Yeah, I read the first three, and uh, looking forward to this one, uh, and I imagine it's going to be just as hefty as the uh, of the others. So. Uh, possibly. Uh, I mean, it is a, a series of novellas right. rather than a novel, and uh, the, it, it comes in at, you know under 300 pages. So not nearly as hefty as not nearly as hefty. <laughs> so uh, yeah. you know, maybe a little bit of lighter reading there. Yeah. Um, and finally, I just wanted to touch at number twenty on Citizens Creek by Lolita Tatame. Um, this is uh, the author of the Oprah Book Club pick, Cane River. Mm -hmm. And of course, once Oprah graces something with her magic wand, it is covered in sparkles and glitter forever. So, uh, in this case, Tatami brings us the evocative story of a once enslaved man who ends up serving as a translator and buying his freedom. Uh, and then it fast forwards to the present day and looks at the life of his granddaughter. So, uh, this is a, a, a very interesting sort of two layer historical novel, mm. which I, I feel like is getting more common though. No specific examples come to mind, mm. but um, I, I think it's an interesting way of relating the past to the present and showing the ways that history still reverberates today. Right. 
So what's happening on the nonfiction list? Well, the highest debut we have is number four. This is For Love of Country, What Our Veterans Can Teach Us About Citizenship, Heroism, and Sacrifice uh, by Howard Schultz. And this is uh, obviously uh, coming just in time for Veterans Day this week. Mm-hmm. came out last week um, and um, obviously has resonated with, with a bunch of readers. Um, so uh, that one is at number four. And then we have, uh, we got a couple of diet and cookbooks coming out, but mm-hmm. um, we usually don't see diet books until after the holidays when the New Year's resolutions, but it seems that the newest by J.J. Virgin, uh, she's been writing uh, cookbooks for, for a few years now, or at least, uh, sorry, diet books. Um, the last couple have been have uh, been dealing specifically with sugar and the impact of sugar on the diet, and this one is J.J. Virgin's Sugar Impact Diet, Drops 7 Hidden Sugar. Sugars lose up to 10 pounds in just two weeks. Um, perhaps they're marketing this right before the holidays so people can start uh, trimming down so they won't feel so guilty when the holidays come, or at least in this case, m- maybe watch a little bit what they eat over the holidays. So uh, this is at number six. It uh, came out last week. And uh, we have a memoir by uh, actress-singer Jennifer Lopez, her first book ever. It's called True Love. Uh, and here she explores one of the life's most defining periods, the transformative two-year journey of how, as an artist and a mother, she confronted her greatest challenges. So um, she's got lots of fans, some detractors, but lots of fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's at number seven. I feel like she hasn't been in the spotlight so much as she used to be. No, so it's right. it's interesting seeing her make the shift, perhaps, to writing. Right, exactly, yeah. And, and I, I think she... she seemed to fall out of the spotlight a little bit after uh, she had kids, after um, after her marriage uh, Mark Anthony, now that that's over. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Going down the list, we have number 11, Stonewalled, My Fight for Truth Against the Forces of Obstruction, Intimidation, and Harassment in Obama's Washington. Uh, this is by uh, CBS reporter Cheryl Atkinson. Uh, and uh, she reveals how, uh, this is according to the press material, she has been electronically surveilled while digging deep into the Obama administration and its scandals. And here uh, she offers a critique of her industry and the shrinking role, uh, what she perceives as investigative journalism in today's media. Wow. Yes. So um, that's at number 11. It sounds like it hits all of the big talking points at the moment. Yes. That's so true. Exactly. So true. Uh, uh, Surveillance, Mm -hmm. Obama. Privacy concerns. Privacy concerns. Which we're going to be talking with Cory Doctorow about later on in the show. Right. Politics. uh, And I think a lot of eyes are on Obama as uh, he hits this lame duck period of the presidency. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a good time for this. Yeah. And uh, number 23, we have a science book. This is called Undeniable Evolution and the Science of Creation by Bill Nye, written with uh, Corey Powell, who is the uh, former editor-in-chief of Discover Magazine. And uh, in our review, we say the science guy jumps off from and expands the arguments from his public debate with creationist Ken Ham. Positing that to deny the reality of evolution is tantamount to denying science as a whole. Um, we say nice popularizing talent shine in this one. And if he's preaching to the science-loving choir, at least he's giving them easy-to-understand explanations to bolster their inevitable dinner, uh, dinner table or internet arguments. So uh, it was written by... Uh, with Bill Nye with uh, Corey Powell. So, And that's at number 23. And finally... Uh, at number 38, this is one of the books we discussed last week on our cookbook issue, mm-hmm. uh, our cookbook uh, uh, show, uh, Pruned by Gabrielle Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is at number three. Uh, I believe it's coming out number nine in the New York Times bestseller list on our list. It's at number three. 38 for all nonfiction. Um, and we say here, this is one of the most brilliantly minimalist cookbooks in recent memory. No preface, no introduction, no interminable recounting of all that Hamilton has witnessed in her 15 years as chef owner of New York's Prune Restaurant. Um, so I'm happy to see that on the list. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and uh, there'll be a couple more, and we'll be seeing, I believe, a couple next next week as we get closer to the holidays. We'll yeah. see how that turns out. 
Absolutely. And Ina Garten is still uh, at the top of our list for the second week in a mm. row. Um, a mere 53,000 sales mm. this week <laughs> compared oh. to last week's 131,000. But uh, it's still uh, considerably more than the next couple of books on the list. Yeah. Uh, so definitely the Barefoot Contessa keeps going and going and going. Right there at the top. I'll, I'll be curious to see how long that lasts. She, she could possibly keep it going all the way through the, the Christmas cooking season and through the end of the year. I actually wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll wait and find out. Great. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Cory Doctorow tells us his three laws for the information age. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Cory Doctor on the line, all the way from London. His new book is Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. Hi, Cory. Hi there. So, information wants to be free was a very popular saying in the early days of the Internet. What's changed over the past 20 years? Well, I don't think the the wisdom of the saying has changed. You know, it was said by Stuart Brand at the first Hackers Conference in an onstage discussion with Steve Wozniak, one of the founders of Apple. And Brand said, information wants to be free, but information wants to be expensive. And he was kind of giving us a koan about the Internet, that on the one hand, the more IT knowledge there is and the faster and better our computers get, the harder it is to control the copying and dissemination of information. But paradoxically, as the um, amount of IT knowledge and IT in the field grows, the value of any given piece of information is apt to go up. So that was a that was a wonderful thing and a very clever thing for Stuart to have said. The problem is that um, nobody actually knows that context. And so what they think is that when people argue about, say, whether or not it should be legal to have anything that you want removed from the Internet just by claiming it infringes copyright, that the reason you care about this stuff is because you want to make sure that information is free. And, you know, I've devoted about 10-plus years of my life to arguing about information policy and being an activist on information policy, and I've never once gotten out of bed because I wanted to make sure that information had its destiny fulfilled. I took because, you know, we live in an information age, where everything we do is mediated by the Internet. And so if people are going to be free, they need a free, fair, and open information infrastructure. Okay, so um, in your book, you talk about Doctorow's three laws. Take us, take us through those. Sure. It it actually started at the 2008 Tools of Change conference in New York, a publishing conference that O'Reilly put on. And and oftentimes, um, when I speak uh, in the U.S., especially the first day I get there, my talks are a little bit hallucinogenic because I spent the whole night with horrible jet lag sort of up in my hotel room working on my speech. And this was no exception. I'd come up with uh, Dr. O's first law or Dr. O's law in the middle of the night, I grandiosely called it. And it's anytime someone puts a lock on something that belongs to you, and won't give you the key, that lock isn't there for your benefit. And many companies and many individuals in the creative industries have found themselves being wooed by technology companies like Amazon and Apple uh, and Google with claims that they can give them digital rights management technology that will control piracy. And for many companies, it's actually become an article of faith that if you don't allow, if you uh, don't require your works to go out with digital rights management, they're just going to end up all over the internet immediately and um, you'll have no control over them. The technical reality has been that um, all digital rights management systems are broken right away, and everything that was ever DRM released is available as a free download regardless. But um, that's not to say that DRM doesn't do something. It does something incredibly important, which is that it transfers negotiating power from the hands of the the investors in creative works, from the publishers and the studios and the labels, into the hands of the companies that make and sell DRM. Because the law, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, says that only these companies, only the companies that make the DRM, can authorize the removal of that DRM. And what that means is that if you're Hachette, and Hachette is easily the most um, emphatic user of DRM among the big five, and all of your books have been locked up with DRM, when you have a dispute with Amazon and you say, well, if you don't want to sell our books, we're going to um, take our business elsewhere and we'll sell our books somewhere else, Amazon can say, that's fine, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out because you can't authorize your customers to unlock 
all of your books that they bought from us and take them with you to somewhere like Apple or to Google. Um, you've effectively transferred control over those customers to us. So that's the first rule, that, that if someone um, locks something up and then won't give you the key, that lock isn't there for your benefit. And so after Tools of Change, I went out to lunch with my agent, which is what writers do in New York. They get free lunches. And um, my agent, uh, Russ Galen, um, was the Arthur C. Clarke agent. Now he's the estates agent. And when I told him I'd come up with a law, he said, you know, if there's one thing I learned from Arthur, it's that you need to have three laws. So I came up with two more. And the second law is that... Um, Although being famous won't automatically make you rich, no one will give you money unless they've heard of your books. So the way that authors and other creative people make money is by people knowing that their works exist and going out and, and, and paying for them. Not everybody who downloads them pays for them, but nobody will pay for them or download them unless they've heard of them. And the way that that payment and that discovery takes place these days is over the Internet. It's, uh, it's, it's through services like Google and services like PayPal and services like Kickstarter. And um, those uh, online services that either can complement traditional publishing or act as an alternative to it. You know, either you're, you're someone like me who uses the Internet to help sell books through a publisher like Macmillan, or maybe you're someone like Hugh Howie who uh, made a success of himself uh, independently without having to deal with a publisher and then negotiated a much better deal from Simon & Schuster because they needed him more than, than he needed them. Or you might be someone like Amanda Palmer who became very successful through the label system and then went out on her own and, and pieced together this uh, business for herself using the, um, the, uh, the public Internet infrastructure. And it doesn't matter which of those deals you're in, the existence of the Internet gets the creative class a better deal from the investor class, from the publisher's and the studios and the labels, because the internet represents a kind of competitor of last resort. The worst deal that a publisher or a label or a studio can offer you has to be better than the best deal you think you can piece together for yourself out of um, uh, bits and pieces lying around on the internet. Whether or not you end up going indie, the existence of successful indies puts the floor on your negotiations with your labels and studios, and yet the um, uh, uh, creative people, the, the, the sort of labor in this triangle have been endorsing programs that make it much harder to start new uh, online businesses and provide that kind of competition we need that makes sure that we've always got someone to go to who isn't our publishers. So, you know, the Authors Guild, for example, told Google that they could only index books and make them searchable if they gave the Authors Guild $70 million and said that nobody else would get that deal after Google. And what they were effectively setting up was a system where only Google could uh, index books and make books discoverable, which, you know, for Google, $70 million is what they've got lying around between the sofa cushions. It was an incredible deal. Um, or, you know, the movie industry pressured YouTube into adding Content Guard, which is their content ID, which is their multi-hundred million dollar system for automatically identifying uh, infringing material and blocking it when it goes up on YouTube. And, you know, I think they felt like that was a great idea. But what it means is that no one is ever going to be able to start a competitor to YouTube unless it's just as big as Google is already. So the new boss is always going to be the same as the old boss. And we already see that happening. Like, um, Google started a competition a service to uh, to um, Spotify, a streaming music service, and they gathered the four big labels in a room and negotiated the terms on which they would license their music for the streaming service. And then they went to all the indie labels and said, "You will take the terms that your biggest competitors have organized, the, the term the terms that the uh, majors agreed to, or you are no longer allowed to use YouTube to promote your music." And so they effectively. Uh, by making it hard to have competition for YouTube, have made YouTube part of the record industry instead of an alternative to it. So that's the second law. So I, I'm I'm just I'm going to take a step back, uh, and I want to go back actually sure. to the obscurity um, and and piracy question because that's something that I hear authors talk about a lot. Um, mm -hmm. How how do you respond to to these authors who are genuinely concerned that piracy is going to cut into their sales? I mean, authors don't make a lot of money, so you know, when when someone is really counting every sale, every penny that comes through on the royalty statement, um, how do you how do you reassure them that that your law is in fact a law and not just a bit of wishful thinking? Well, so I, I don't say that piracy doesn't cut into sales. It might cut into sales. I, I think for some authors it does, and for some authors it doesn't. Actually, all the empirical research suggests that um, 
for most authors, it's a wash. For very successful authors, it's a small loss. And for authors who are just starting out, it's a small gain. That, that basically, it's a, it's a kind of progressive taxation. But I think that the, the real issue is that all of the stuff that we've tried to prevent piracy has completely failed. So um, no one actually has a way to, to prevent piracy. It's not like copying is ever going to get harder. You know, your great-grandchildren will marvel at how hard copying was in 2014. And so... Um, um, if you're going to treat the Internet as a fact instead of as a problem and try to figure out how to make money from it instead of just stamping your foot in frustration about it, your concern shouldn't be to make sure that everybody who pays reads uh, or everybody who reads pays, rather, but to ensure that everyone who is paying, that as much of that money as possible is landing in your pocket. And that's contingent on your deal with your publisher, who, after all, take the money in on your behalf from the retailers. And so what we want is a system where the first people in line to get paid when, when stuff is bought are the, or, or paid for through other means like advertising or whatever, um, that the first people to get paid are us, the creators. The second are the publishers who invested in us. And the third are the tech companies. And our publishers, through their lobbying and general strategic incompetence, as well as the rest of the entertainment industry, have engineered a system where it's just the reverse. First, they handed the keys to the kingdom to the uh, tech companies by letting them use proprietary digital rights management. And then they conned up us into supporting them in their efforts to make it harder to start competitors to them so that they can command these crazy deals, right? Like, um, if you're uh, uh, an author these days, your publisher, chances are, is going to ask not just for your U.S. rights, but for your global English rights, increasingly for your global translation rights, um, and increasingly things like audiobook and, uh, and um, uh, graphic novel adaptation rights. And so, you know, if you want to make sure that you get as much of the money as is possible, um, you want to you wanna make sure that there's competition when you and your publisher sit down to negotiate, that they aren't able to sort of claw in all of the rights and and uh, to have you know whatever accounting practices seem nice at the time uh, <laughs> and to set whatever royalty they feel like you want them to be on the lookout for you walking out the door and walking into the door of another company that might be offering you a better deal and when there's five publishers and four record labels and five movie studios competition's pretty thin on the ground so you you're obviously you've walked the talk um you've got some indie publishing under your belt and you've also done some books with traditional publishers um just dis- mm-hmm. despite being clearly concerned about their ability to do what it is that they're supposed to do um how how has that worked out for you do you find that this works in practice well, sure. I mean, you know, I don't have a, a, a time machine, so I can't go back and re-release the same books under different circumstances and compare the results. So maybe I've passed on a fortune that would make Croesus blush uh, by by releasing my books under Creative Commons licenses. But, you know, I've got a book on the New York Times bestseller list right now uh, that came out in October. I have another book that comes out, uh, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, in a week that has already sold out its initial print run two weeks before the release. Release date on pre-orders, and they're they're going back to the press. So, it seems to me that like if if one way to gauge how well an author is doing is you say, well, publishers for whatever mistakes they make are not terrible by and large at guessing how many books you're likely to sell. And so, when you sell more books than the publisher expects you to sell that probably means you're doing pretty well. And so consistently, my books sell out their first print runs and many subsequent print runs. And I think that's a pretty good sign. You know, um, I've had bestsellers for the last two or three books and uh, um, and many bestsellers and publish- publications in many countries and repeat publications in many countries where they bought the foreign rights and then they bought the foreign rights to the next book because the last one did well. So all of those things suggest to me that it's doing well. But again, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that there isn't some possibility that this is that this is all totally wrong and that if I were uh, if I were kind of bent on terrorizing people into paying me instead of charming them into it that I mightn't be richer. I don't think I'd sleep better, though. Hmm. So, so we've talked about uh, the digital locks. We've talked about piracy and obscurity. And the third uh, of the uh, doctoral laws is on copyright. What's your take on it? Well, it's on it's on the idea that information doesn't want to be free. That that um, 
for all that many of us are full-time artists, we're even more full-time human beings. And we are human beings in the 21st century where the internet has become the nervous system of our society, where everything we do involves the internet and uh, everything we're going to do tomorrow will require it. And in the name of protecting our livelihoods, we have horribly compromised uh, the internet's integrity. Like any information can be made to disappear from the internet by accusing it of copyright inf infringement without an adversarial judicial process, without a court order, without any kind of, of uh, kind of checks and balances or due process, the, the stuff that we would expect if someone were going to go into a bookstore and start pulling books off the shelves and sticking them in a dumpster, none of that stuff applies to the internet, even though there are a hell of a lot more people who rely on the internet for information than any bookstore. And so, you know, by allowing that to be done in our name, we have paved the way for everyone from the Church of Scientology to the King of Thailand to British neo-Nazis abusing the takedown process in our, that was set up in our name to censor the internet. And, you know, um, uh, we've, we've even had uh, in our name things uh, attempt to go further. So Viacom uh, asked the Supreme Court to hold, first of all, that Google should hire lawyers to review 100 hours of video uploaded to YouTube every minute uh, before allowing it to go live, which, you know, on the one hand would have made it impossible for independent creators to publish their work because they would have had to pass those costs on and we don't have the money for it. But on the other hand, at 100 hours of video every minute, almost everything there isn't being made by independent creators. It's everything else. It's the entire communicative capacity of the planet that we were willing to shelve in the name of making sure that people didn't watch TV on the wrong day. Um, and, uh, and, and beyond that, they also said that um, any service that allows people to upload material and flag it as private so that it can't be seen by Viacom is abetting piracy and should be held partially liable for that piracy because um, if they can't see whether or not you're pirating, then you should be presumed to be pirating. And again, like the internet is not a video on demand service. The internet is where all of our communications take place. And the idea that we shouldn't be allowed to have a discussion that Viacom isn't party to, to be sure that the daily show is only being watched in the, in the order in which it was broadcast is completely bananas. Uh, and when it comes to digital locks, when it comes to DRM, it's actually much worse. The rules that protect DRM say that it's a felony to help people remove DRM. And they're so broadly written that um, giving people information about flaws in devices that use DRM is also a felony. So if you have an iPhone that um, in uses DRM to make sure you only install uh, software from Apple, telling you if there's a bug in your iPhone that would help you uh, install software from someone else uh, including pirated software, is a felony, even though that flaw might also expose you to horrible uh, liability in the form of um, uh, people being able to silently take over the camera or the microphone. You know, remember, your your phone is a computer that lives in your pocket, except when it's on your bedside or next to you in the toilet, and it knows who all your friends are and everything that you talk to about with them, and, and also all the places that you go and how to log into your bank account and what you and your doctor are talking about this week. And so the idea that, like, as computers are creeping into the very fabric of our reality, we increasingly have houses that are automated. We have cars that are automated. You know, a plane is a flying Solaris workstation. Um, that we would we would criminalize telling people critical information about flaws in those computers is such a terrible idea. Uh, and you know, again. 0.001% of us earn a living from the arts, and uh, even those of us who do, um, we are human beings first, and we shouldn't want to poison the digital waters this way, not because of the desires of information, but because, you know, as, as parents and as children and as brothers and sisters, you know, allowing our art to be used as the rubric for adding this kind of surveillance and control and these long-lived pathogens to the Internet is just a dreadful idea. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Cory Doctorow, author of Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, and he is telling us some really intense things about the digital ecosystem and the artist's place in it. And it's been really wonderful hearing this, and I just wanted to see what your advice might be, say, for our you know, our listeners who are might be first-time mid-list authors. I mean, how, how can they maybe, I don't know, take charge of this, or how can they incorporate this into their, their own thinking? So step one, I think, is just don't let people put uh, DRM on your works. You know, fight that fight with your publisher. It may seem like it's a very abstract fight uh, at the outset, but what you're doing is you're effectively trading your publisher for Amazon, Apple, Kobo, and the other DRM companies. And those companies are not cuddly, warm, nice people. I mean, neither are the publishers. As John Scalzi says, they're not your friends, right? They're all fully paid up members of the cult of fiduciary duty. The only thing that they uh, owe allegiance to is their shareholders' profits. And if once you transfer control over your copyrights, you know, the real control, the only control that matters, which is the right of your customers to follow you from one platform to another, once once you give that to them, they're going to use it to extract as much of the money that your works generate as is possible. Um, and so it, it may limit your options at the outset, but it's something worth fighting really hard for. It's, it's not a little ask for a publisher to say, will you let us lock your copyrights to Amazon for all eternity, even beyond the term of copyright, because you can't remove the digital lock even from public domain works uh, once it's been applied to it without falling afoul of the law. Um, so that that's that's number one. Um, number two is to uh, uh, make your peace with the idea that um, there's not a future lurking out there in which uh, people will be able to uh, you'll be able to make sure that that only people who pay read your books. Um, if you if you understand that whether or not your books are licensed under Creative Commons, people will be able to take them regardless of what you do, then then you have to start shifting your thinking from uh, terrorizing people into compliance to charming them into it, to performing public acts of generosity and trust that inspire reciprocal feeling from your audience. And, you know, the most successful artists today are the artists who do that, the artists who have that kind of relationship with their audience. And not every artist feels comfortable doing that, and I understand that. Um, But, you know, before the radio and the record came along, nobody suspected that there was a kind of a musical performer who was amazing and who would charm people and be wonderful to hear, but who didn't actually want to perform in front of an audience. Like, that was as weird as the idea of a swimmer who, who would win the gold, but who didn't like to get wet. And yet, once the radio came along, it turned out that there was a whole cohort of artists who felt that way, who who were really made to perform that way. And, you know, now, of course, those artists are the dominant form, and they say, well, what do you mean you want me to go out on tour and make a personal connection with my audience? That's not how I, uh, a respectable musician earns her living these days. So if you can find that feeling in yourself, that feeling of... of trust and generosity and personal connection, cultivate it. Uh, and if not, find a publisher who can help you cultivate it. That's the publisher's job, is to take those parts of um, that are involved in, in getting your books into the hands of an audience um, and uh, those things that you can't do or, or that aren't cost-effective or time-effective for you to do and figuring out how to do them themselves. And so, you know, make that part of your negotiation with your publisher as well. How are they going to help you um, uh, make that personal connection. So speaking of getting a little personal, um, you've got a family, you're an activist, you're an author, you do lots of interviews like this, lots of speaking commitments. How do you balance all of that stuff? Do you, do you ever sleep? Uh, I don't sleep as much as I'd like, I must admit. I, uh, I had a book launch yesterday here in London, and so I, I, I was home very late. Um, turns out that when you publish graphic novels, you do a lot of events on Wednesday nights, because that's the very best night to do an event in a comic store, because it's when all the new comics come in. Um, and uh, But I, I guess the, the number one kind of one weird trick that I cultivated when I began uh, writing in earnest and selling in earnest was cleansing myself of all ceremony when I wrote. I just um, figured out how many words I needed to write every day and just wrote them even when they felt like bad words, even when they felt like, like words that weren't 
um, worthy words and that they were ir- irreparable words that I would never be able to make worthy. And what I realized was that in hindsight, I couldn't tell the words that I'd written on days when I felt like I was being very inspired and from the words that I wrote on days when I felt like I was just sort of phoning it in or writing, writing, you know, very mechanically. And that's that both of those conditions were related to things like my blood sugar level and my love life much more than they were related to the words I was actually writing on the page. And so having had that realization, it doesn't change the feeling that I get when I'm working, especially I'm now at the end of a 180,000 word novel and it's just kicking my ass. And it, and I sit down every day in absolute terror that I'm writing badly. And that terror is no different from the terror I felt in my 20s. Um, but uh, I sit down every day in that terror. And intellectually, I know that the terror is not well-founded. And so I work not because I'm not afraid, but because I've overcome the fear, because I can feel the fear and go past it. And once you can do that, um, then writing itself is not an enormously time-consuming activity. Everything else I do is what inspires me to write. And then putting the words down uh, on disc is a matter of a couple of hours every day. So this this sounds like advice that every NaNoWriMo participant needs to hear right now it's you know, feel the fear and do it anyway i suppose yeah yeah i mean without wanting to get all tony robinson here um i i do think that uh if you pull stuff out of a drawer uh a year or two later and you look at it you know for a fact if you if you think back on those times that you wrote some of those words feeling like you were absolutely touched by the hand of god and you wrote other words feeling like well these will have to do until the good words come along and that you just can't tell the difference that objectively there isn't there isn't a way to know when you're writing good or writing bad that that all has to happen in retrospect so what do you think is going to be the next big shift in how people interact with information? Because that, that really seems to be the, the core thing that you study, I suppose, that you, that you analyze and think about and talk about. Well, I think it's going to be the metastasizing of the digital rights management idea. And this is what I'm, I'm really afraid of, that the, um, uh, the idea that we should design computers to control their owners to stop them from doing socially undesirable things, uh, and that in order to make sure that they don't change those computers, that we um, design the computers so that they hide what they're doing from their from their owners. Uh, because, of course, if there was a program on your computer called, I can't let you do that, Dave, you would just drag it into the trash. So your computer has to be somehow designed to hide what it's doing when it stops you from saving a Netflix stream or installing third-party software that hasn't been authorized by Apple. And um, I think that that's expanding very quickly. Uh, we just saw the FBI call for doors on all iPhones now that Apple has announced that it's going to start encrypting phones by default. And there's not really any such thing as a backdoor. All a backdoor is is a program that lets the FBI read what's on your phone um, that you can't delete or stop from running. And that's no difference from, uh, in, in sort of, in, in technical terms, from a program that runs on your phone that stops you from installing third-party software that you can't delete or stop from running. Uh, at the same time, we have um, this giant subprime auto lending industry that now that all the houses are gone, they're they're trying to get people's cars. And so, uh, the way that you get a subprime auto loan is you agree to allow the the finance company to put a uh, uh, an ignition override on your car that's tied to a GPS and a mobile cellular SIM, and if you miss a payment, your ignition is switched off remotely. And, of course, YouTube is full of videos showing how to disable this stuff. Right. Because, you know, for the same reason you can disable DRM on the phone that's in your house, you know, the same reason we don't keep ATMs in bank robbers' living rooms, if you, if, you know, if you don't trust someone, you can't give them the equipment that um, has the lock in it and then let them take it home with them because they will figure out at home how to break it. And I just can't believe that Congress have given the entertainment industry the right to make a felon out of anyone who shows someone how to watch TV the wrong way wouldn't be willing to do the same for anyone who um, figures out how to defeat the FBI's efforts to wiretap them or um, uh, anyone who figures out how to uh, uh, drive their car when the finance company says they shouldn't be. And especially since there's billions of dollars on the line in the latter case and the global war on terror, which seems to be like an all-purpose catch-all in the former case. And so I really fear that we are right at the cusp of, the, of a, a horrific metastasizement of this 
terrible idea that computers should control their owners. You know, and as a science fiction writer, this idea is so dumb on its face that I can't believe it has as much currency as it does. So as a science fiction writer, um, some of your fiction is very dystopian and pessimistic, and some of it is more optimistic. How do you think we can get from here to a brighter future? So I, I actually disparage both optimism and pessimism, because I think they're both forms of prediction. And um, I think science fiction writers who make predictions are like drug dealers who sample their own product. It never, ever ends well. Um, I, uh, you know, the thing is, if I were optimistic about technology, I would get up every morning and do everything I could to make technology a force for freedom, privacy, self-actualization, community, uh, and all of those good things, and to stop it being used for surveillance and control and for the magnification of our social differences. Um, and if I were a pessimist about technology, I would do exactly the same thing every day. So rather than pessimism or optimism, I think it's useful to think about hope. Uh, and hope is why if your ship sinks in the middle of the open water, you keep treading water, even though almost everyone who's ever been lost at sea wasn't picked up by a passing ship. Everybody who was picked up by a passing ship treaded water until one came along. And you know, um, if your ship sank and you were with a loved one who couldn't kick for herself, you would put her arms around your neck and you would kick twice as hard for both of you. And of course, the earth has everyone we love on it and everything we love on it. And so hope demands that we do everything we can to try and change the situation. I devoted my life to this kind of activism um, and that we work as hard as we can, not because there's a good chance or a bad chance of it working, but because unless we do this, there's no chance of it working. Well, let's hope we all uh, wrap our arms around each other and continue this going. So we've been talking with Corey Doctorow. You can find his book, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, in stores right now. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you, folks. It was nice talking to you. Give my regards to Broadway. <laughs> we will. We, we'll, we'll do. It's right around the corner, so uh, we'll, we'll definitely do that. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us about the brand new deal between Amazon and Hachette, so stay tuned. Hi, this is Michaela the Prince, and I'm the author of Taking Flight, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here with breaking news from the bookselling world. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. Hey, Mark. Uh, Glad to be here on short notice. Yeah, it was very kind of you to uh, duck out of your office, especially when I'm sure you're getting bombarded with emails. What's going on? Well, uh, what has happened is uh, late this morning, Thursday morning, um, word came down that Amazon and Hachette had reached uh, an agreement over their long-running and highly visible uh, dispute over e-book sales terms. Do we have any idea what that agreement actually is? Well, that's a good question. it looks an awful like the one that Amazon reached with Simon & Schuster uh, about three weeks ago and with much less rancor and um, public display of people f- pro and con for Amazon. Um, what it's basically understood is, without getting into too much of the weeds here, is that it's returning a, a bit back to agency pricing in that uh, the publishers certainly get a few things they wanted. Um, most notably, um, the ability to set prices, because the way it's, it has been since uh, the agreement in the antitrust suit that, the, uh, that was brought against Apple and some of the, and the big five of the publishers, um, Amazon and the retailers could set the price, and publishers were, were, were rather eager to get that power back. So when you buy a print book, the price is printed right there on, on the book. So this is a similar sort of arrangement for ebooks. More or less, yeah, right. And because, again, without getting too much into the corporate details of all this, print books are priced on the wholesale model, which is if you see that book for $20, you know, rule of thumb is that the publisher kept half and the retailer kept half. With ebook pricing, it's always been a bit... 
it started like that, but then Amazon, you know, really wanted to bring the price of ebooks down to encourage mm-hmm. people to buy them. So they were heavily discounting. That led to the first round of agency pricing, which in turn led to the lawsuits, which in return <laughs> led to a modification of what they were doing. And now we're sort of back, not exactly at square one, but we're back to where I think publishers are happy. So I was just going to say, according to everything that we've heard, uh, publishers happy, Hachette's happy, Amazon's happy, book authors should be happy, everyone seems to be happy. Is yeah, this the it, case? <laughs> well, it does seem that it's a win-win-win for, right. as you said, Amazon uh, publishers and the authors. It's a little bit unclear next year at this time of all three of those parties will still be happy. Uh, the publishers have been saying that the authors will still get about the same share of uh, royalties that they were getting under the old one. Um, the publishers don't seem to be giving up much margin of any at all. And Amazon, of course, isn't really saying. The thing they've been pointing out is that the, um, the agreements do provide them room to discount in certain occasions. Mm-hmm. Right. And with Amazon, I mean, uh, it, it seems like I guess for publishing, it seems like the deal with Simon & Schuster uh, a couple weeks ago was probably benefited by their on long by this long going discussion with Hachette. Well, it certainly seemed like that was the case. Yeah. And, and we should be clear, though, Simon and Schuster was negotiating with Amazon for quite a while too. I right. mean, Les Moonves, he's the uh, head of CBS parent company of uh, Simon and Schuster, acknowledged back in July that they had been talking to Amazon. So. It's just that it it came way under the radar. And for whatever reason, and there's lots of speculation, why Amazon decided to take really the hard tack it took with Hachette back in the spring, you know, it's a little unclear. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, again, we don't really know the details, but on the face of it and the bold outlines, they're practically the same agreement between SNS and Hachette. But you know, six, six months ago, tell, tell us a little bit about the background there with the, the recent dispute between Amazon and Hachette, because uh, readers who aren't super in-depth familiar with this stuff may not see just why this is such a big deal that they finally sat down and reached an agreement. Right. Yeah, well, that's a great point, because what had happened was, you know, it came out into the public in, uh, in May when Amazon is a negotiating tactic, I guess you could say, um, stop taking pre-orders for uh, Hachette books and then over the course of a few weeks also would list them out of stock they wouldn't carry the titles they would delay shipping them so they're employing a bunch of tactics to make it hard for consumers to buy uh, Hachette books and this is print books by the way even though the dispute was over digital um made it hard for them to buy books through Amazon. And Amazon is, as most people know, the largest bookseller in the country. And so a lot of authors, especially mid-list authors, really took a hit. A lot of authors took a hit. And, of course, it ignited this whole debate across the country about does Amazon have too much power? Should it be investigated for antitrust? There was a whole movement started by some authors called Authors United that uh, really uh, resented the the attack that Amazon seemed to be taking by making authors kind of a chip in all of this. That, you know, the, the people really getting punished in this while authors, while uh, Hachette's profits were being hurt. Authors themselves were losing money um, as Amazon enjoyed to uh, use this policy of making it hard and in you know, practical effects, lowering sales for authors' books. And so what do we think is going to follow suit? I mean, will we, or I should say, when will we know the details of this, if ever, of this deal? And then how will it play out with the other, with the remaining big publishers? Well, I don't know if we'll ever really know the details because and this is, you know, as some people have pointed out all along, it's really a sales negotiation and these negotiations happen every year between every publisher and every retailer about. Um, but again, it really, you know, it caught fire in the public's imagination, if you will, because of the tactics that Amazon was using in what many thought was really a high-handed you know, club. Right. Um, but in terms of what it probably, I, I think you know, there's more 
deals to be negotiated with Penguin Random House and Harper and McMillan. And I'd be shocked if they don't follow along at least the bold outlines of what we have here. I mean, I think we do have a precedent for the, the, the major guys. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, what does the author get out of this agreement other than obviously their books being back on Amazon? Because <laughs> um, you, you said that uh, it sounded like royalties stayed about the same. I just, I keep feeling like Amazon has basically done nothing here except wandered into a big PR debacle and then wandered back out again. Well, they certainly ran, put one into a deba- PR debacle. I mean, there's never been so much more negative press written about Amazon and calls from various sources, you know, wondering if, you know, the time isn't right for an antitrust investigation of Amazon. I mean, lots of people think that's really mm-hmm. unrealistic, but still, um, and that the call is out there. And you know, to be clear on the royalty, the royalty, what Amazon, what Hachette will be paying, um, its authors are going to stay the same. It's what well, they were worried about the pie would shrink in, in the margins because somebody would have to give up something. But um, from what we understand and our best information to date, you know, the money pool from the Salavi books will be about the same that hmm. the authors can draw on. Aren't royalties negotiated individually with each author? Is this more of a sort of general? Well, that's been actually very interesting in that. Um, Shortly after the news came out that, um, you know, the deal had been reached, the Authors Guild uh, congratulated both parties on reaching an agreement and then said, well, given the author's support of um, Hachette, maybe it's time to revisit the 25% royalty rate on e-books. Because hmm. this certainly has been a long-standing sticking point between um, all publishers and, well, big publishers and most authors, because the standard, if you will, royalty rate on ebooks is 25%. Now, as Rose suggests, some authors, the big authors, could probably negotiate a higher rate. But, you know, if you look in the boilerplate of anybody's contract, the standard ebook royalty is 25%. Mm. So it sounds like there's still some big stories to come out of this. I think people are going to be looking at this for a number of weeks ahead. And like you said, there are more ramifications uh, to be seen. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in and giving us the the inside view on what's going on. Uh, And certainly we'll stay tuned for more breaking news stuff. Is this all being covered on PW's website? Yes, we have two stories up already, so I'm, little, I'm sure we'll have more as the as the days unfold. Oh. And hopefully a big anal- analysis in the weeks to come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jim, thanks so much. Right, thanks, guys. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 